Hello, my name is Philip Mirton, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Meriton. Now, in this show, we're going to tackle one of the most controversial subjects out there, and that is intelligent design. Now, perhaps no subject so sharply reveals the division between science and spirituality as the topic of evolution. Ever since Darwin, a battle has raged over whether Darwinianism did away with the need for an intelligent designer. We know from best-selling books such as Richard Dawkins' The Blind Watchmaker that the orthodox scientific view is that natural selection operating on its own is sufficient to explain not only the origin but the diversity and, and evolution of all life forms. But today we're going to try to get past these preconceptions and what we're supposed to believe in and look at the theory of natural selection, look at the facts. And the question is going to be, does the existence and variety of life show that something more than natural selection is at work in the living world. So the title of the show is Intelli Is Intelligent Design Science? Now joining me in this conversation, I'm very happy to have with us Professor Michael Behe, who is not only the professor of biological sciences at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania, but he's also the author of the best-selling and highly controversial book entitled Darwin's Black Box, which helped launch the intelligent design movement. Now this book, Darwin's Black Box, was named by National Review and World Magazine as one of the most, as one of the 100 most important books of the 20th century. And on this conversation, I think we're going to try to, I think we're going to try to find out why that is. And I hope you'll see the importance of some of the ideas and criticisms that Professor B. He has. Welcome to the show, Professor. It's great having you. Thanks. It's, it's wonderful to be with you. Well, I really wanted to have you on the show because I think that it is so important to give both sides, and maybe there's three sides to the story, but all sides to the evolution story. I think so many of us, when we try to be scientific and we try to be on the right side of the issue, and when anybody is asked the question, well, do you believe in Darwin? I think most people, as a matter of like an automatic response, would say, oh, yes, I believe in Darwin's theory of evolution. And, but, I ha but I think that a lot of people probably, probably don't know what it is. So let's, let's start this conversation here by first explaining, in simple terms, what Darwin's theory of natural selection is. So why don't you give that a shot? I have a, a funny okay, feeling. Okay, uh, sure. Yeah, it, it's really pretty straightforward. Uh, uh, Darwin uh, 
saw that there were uh, there were a lot of organisms in the world, and and he knew that too many were born for all of them to survive, and so he reasoned that the ones um, he also saw that there was variation in in a lot of the organisms of a species, and so he reasoned that the, uh, that the ones whose chance variation uh, kind of gave them an edge in the struggle to survive, you know, would uh, would likely uh, survive and and leave more offspring than their less uh, fortunate uh, co-species. Uh, and uh, if the if the random trait could be uh, inherited, then more of the next generation would have that uh, helpful trait. And then over a number of generations, it would fix into uh, fix into every member of the species. And then uh, repeating the same process over and over again, uh, it might change the species uh, very far from where it began. So that that's kind of in a nutshell what what Darwin's idea was. I think it's important to distinguish Darwin's theory from from the mid nineteenth century leading theory of the origin of species because I because isn't it true that you know Darwin lived in a different time obviously than we live today and as far as I could tell from my reading on this topic the 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 notion that the Bible was literally true was accepted more in the mid 19th century than it is today and it's and I think that this contrast that between the origin of the species that Darwin theorized about, wrote about, and the biblical creation of the species is really was really the revolutionary breakthrough. Because because even though some people say that even though the name of the book is the origin of the species, he never really explained how one species morphs into another. Yeah. But 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 it was contrasted with this biblical story. Which yeah. is that, in some ways, the, all the species were were planted on the face of the earth. Well, uh, that's that's the actually that's that's the impression that Darwin wanted to give, uh, but it was not the uh, biblical story. Certainly, was not prominent in scientific circles. Now, now I'm no historian or or anything like that, but it's my understanding that uh, many people, uh, many. Uh, uh, many of the scientific elite thought that there was some sort of law or some sort of, uh, you know, some explanation for how life uh, got on Earth. They they thought it was a teleological law or a guided law or something like that. But uh, not many scientists thought that uh, animals and plants appeared in in the six day scheme right. that that's found in the in the Bible. And I, I've heard it argued that Darwin always contrasted his view with the uh, with that uh, pu- kind of puff of smoke creationism right. uh, to, to make it look silly and to yeah. look like his was the rational view. But but uh, but he was uh, to a large extent uh, arguing against a, a straw man that um, people didn't actually think that, but um, but they did think there was a teleological element to life on Earth. Well, one of the things that's coming through to me more and more vividly 
uh, particularly watching this whole story, the, the stories about the Zimmerman trial, it, it, it shows, it emphasizes this, this uh, urge of the media to have uh, opposite foes, to, to, to put the you know, good versus evil. And, and I think that this notion that we only have two choices in looking at evolution or looking at life. The choices are you're either a biblical literalist or you're a Darwinian. And, yeah. and, and I, yeah. think, I think that that's, that's a real problem, and it's something that we're going to get into on this show because my own view is that this question is not a multiple-choice question and, or much less a multiple-choice question with only two answers to it. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, that's that's a classic example of a false dichotomy. You're right. represented with two choices and said you have to pick which one uh, is mm-hmm. true. But but you know, creation out of nothing in six days is not the logical opposite of the evolution of species by random variation and natural selection. There's all sorts of uh, different. Uh, different scenarios one could envision. So, yeah, it's, it makes for good newspapers, I guess, good newspaper stories, but it, it's pretty poor scholarship. Right, and I think that's one of the, the methods that people like Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett uses. I mean, they, they like to contrast their own sophisticated understanding with Darwinianism with biblical literalism, but it really it really isn't that simple. Now, with regard to natural selection, one of, one of the, the problems with that concept to me has always been that what is the nature doing the selecting? And I, I've, I've seen recently where, where some evolutionists, and I think that uh, Ernest Meyer, that, uh, who I'm sure you're familiar with, the, yeah, late, the late professor uh, of biology at Harvard, you know, he, t- he took off the word n- natural, and he just wants to call it selection, as if it's the mere survival of, of, a, of a living thing, of an organism, that is the selection. So if you survive and uh, to the next generation, something has selected you. But, yeah. but to me, I've always, I've always had a problem with, with what is doing the selecting. Yeah, uh, that, that's right, and I, I think Darwin was criticized pretty early on uh, for uh, the, the term natural selection, which I'm not sure was his, uh, or survival of the fittest was not his, but uh, which seems to be you know pretty close to to uh, a redundant or uh, uh, what's the word, uh, and, and we're saying the same thing twice. Uh, uh, survival of the fittest is the or, and how do you tell which are the fittest and it turns out they're the organisms that survive and right. so it's right. kind of self-referential there and right. and also though there's also uh, an element of teleology that kind of sneaks into it if you're envisioning nature as some sort of intelligent agent striving for something that's that's uh, supposed to be the exact opposite of what Darwinism entails, but but in in kind of concocting explanations, oftentimes uh, Darwinists are guilty of of kind of guiding things themselves in the, in their minds. Right. Uh, yeah, so it's yeah, it's had that that flavor of teleology and and uh, kind of redundancy 
you know, ever since uh, ever since Darwin wrote his book. So, okay, so that's that's Darwin's theory of natural selection, and I take it over time, and maybe it was early, you started having doubts about whether natural selection can explain by itself the evolution or development of living organisms. Is that is that about is that right or yeah well it, well it uh, it was actually kind of a sudden okay. <laughs> sudden change for myself i I actually you know believed Darwinian evolution was true because uh frankly i I didn't work on it I didn't think much about evolution I just assumed everybody knew what they were talking about and I you know I was taught that in college and graduate school and and so I believed it and but it was in the late 1980s, 25 years ago now, that I, I read a book called Evolution, A Theory and Crisis by a, an Australian geneticist by the name of Michael Denton. And he pointed out a lot of problems for Darwin's theory that I had never thought of and had never heard about in any lectures. And so it was, it was after reading his book that I started to become uh, very suspicious of, of Darwin's theory and, and start to look for explanations rather than uh, assuming that somebody uh, knew what they were. And, and when I went to the, the science library and tried to look up papers where uh, complex biochemical systems might have been explained, and I'm a biochemist, and it turns out when you study biochemistry, you see these horrendously elegant and complex functional systems. And um, I always assumed that somebody could explain them, but when I looked for papers, it, it turns out that nobody had done so. They kind of wave their hands every now and again, but even that was was pretty minimal. And so from then on, uh, late 80s or so, I, I uh, pretty much thought that Darwin's theory was not all that it was cracked up to be. Uh, one of the things that you do in your book, Darwin's Black Box, and you, I think you also do it in The Edge of Evolution, is that you use the, the microbiology uh, to, to show how intricately complex living things are and that's something that unless you really get into it that old that old adage the devil's in the details you, you don't really have a good sense of it because it's a lot easier to say well the you know fish evolved uh, gradually with to have legs and they and they walked up on the on the earth as as alligators or something and then can, and then turn into dogs and horses and and humans and whatever the the sequence is it's a lot easier to say those words than to explain some of the the uh, development and the com and and or or how the complexity of living organisms actually um, arose, and yeah. th that that I think is something very powerful. And I and I'm going to encourage listeners who have doubts about this pick up uh, Michael's book, Darwin's Black Box, and it's not it's 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 a it's a fairly easy read considering how technical some of it is. But until you understand the complexity of living things you don't get a flavor for for this big question which is how could these things have arisen with such interlocking unity through random processes and i th i think it's pot i think um, right now uh, i'd like to switch to 
to the, the mechanism. This concept of random mutations, I think, is going to be important. Uh, this, is, this is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're talking with Professor Michael Behe, author of Darwin's Black Box, about some of the mysteries of evolution. And right now, we're going to focus a little bit on random mutations because, uh, Professor, these mutations do play a pretty big role, as far as I can tell, in your thinking. Because that's, that's sort of the, the, the standard orthodox way that the evolutionists believe that uh, variety arises. Yeah, that's, that's right. And, and I, sh- I should focus, focus attention on that word random because it was Darwin's kind of claim to fame and his big, his big uh, proposal that the development of life and these, these changes that could, in his, in his thinking, could uh, help to power it were utterly random and not directed by anybody or anything. And that would be, it would be neat if it were, if it were the case, but uh, one has to, has to test to see if that is, is possible or, or likely. And, um, and over time, it, it's become increasingly difficult. As, as you said earlier, um, We've discovered in the in the late 20th century and uh, and 21st that what earlier generations of scientists and Darwin's uh, generation in particular thought were simple structures have turned out to be enormously complex. Uh, the cell itself, most people think of it as a squishy little thing, and Darwin himself and scientists of that time thought of the cell as as kind of a piece of electrified jelly, which they call <laughs> protoplasm. Yeah. And uh, we don't think like that anymore. It turns out that the cell is like some ultra-sophisticated nanoscale factory. You know, really, and it's, it's beyond belief. And for Darwin and folks of his time, it, it was easy to, to kind of explain electrified jelly. Hey, <laughs> maybe, maybe it just came up out of the seafloor, which was a serious proposal. Yeah. And then maybe it, you know, changed its shape a little bit and, and went on from there. Uh, so you can sympathize with Darwin. It was a relatively decent idea for the time. But now that we know much better, that we know about DNA and, and genetic codes and all the information in DNA and the molecular machinery that has to exist to express that information and, and all sorts of stuff, it seems a lot less plausible uh, especially when you're talking about random changes. Uh, random changes in, in jelly are one thing, but say random changes in some intricate you know, electronic device, like say your, your cell phone or something, are unlikely to produce you know, beneficial changes. And, and uh, the um, results that we've gotten in the past you know, 10, 20 years uh, show that pretty much random mutation is much more of a destructive force than anything that could build uh, complex systems. Yeah, I think that's an important point. And I, I, want, I want to highlight a point here that Michael has made about the random mutations. And it's important for the current Darwinians and like many other things, I'm radical on this topic, so bear with me. But they cannot allow anything like a God, spirit, or intelligent force 
to influence evolution. So that, that is understood. And in fact, the real true blue Darwinians necessarily, in my mind, have to be atheists because they have to extract any kind of intelligence, mind, God, from creation. And so that means that they're left with random mutations. It has to be random because if it's not random, it means that something is directing the course of evolution. So, but, th but then we have what I would consider to be a very sharp contradiction because at the same time, they have to have the random mutations. And this is random copying errors from generation to generation. They, they nonetheless have to wind up with something like the DNA code of life. They have to wind up with something as complex as a shell machinery. It's like, and, and that old, that story, which, which you allude to, Professor, the, the old William Paley story about finding a watch on a beach, it, it remains to be, it remains a powerful metaphor. I mean, I, I've never really heard a, a good reputation of that, which is if you're walking along on a beach and you find a watch, you're necessarily going to think that there's an intelligence behind that. And, and, you, and it's, it's really, it's hard to envision how complex, how this complexity, and not only complexity, but an interworking, as you say, machinery, come, comes out of randomness. And, and why don't you talk a little bit about ex examples that you use to illustrate this point? Well, uh, yeah, uh, sh sure. Uh, I, I, I certainly uh, do agree with you. Uh, um, William Paley was utterly correct. I mean, anybody, if he came across a watch on a beach, would realize that that it was designed. And, and the, the kind of uh, conundrum we face today is that we found watches in, in cells and organisms, literally. There are you know, timekeeping mechanisms in, in cells or and once you know what they're, they're like, they're essentially as intricate as, as watches themselves are. Um, but uh, just to, to, to show some of the intricacies of, of the cell itself, I, I, I use a number of examples in, in uh, Darwin's Black Box. And I think the, kind of the poster child example is something called a bacterial flagellum, uh, which is actually an outboard motor that cells used to swim, bacterial cells used to swim. And, and just like a, an outboard motor in our everyday world, it's got a number of different parts. It's got a propeller, it's got a motor, it's got a drive shaft, it's got clamps to hook it onto the cell membrane, just like an a, uh, outboard motor has to be clamped onto the boat. And the problem with Darwin's theory is, is well, there's, there's a number, but uh, is uh, imagining how you could build this thing from scratch, you know, step by tiny step. If you tried to build an outboard motor um, just step by step and, and hope to have it working and functioning and doing something constructive at each step, because otherwise natural selection wouldn't select it, you'll find real quickly that it's very, very difficult, even if you're trying to direct it yourself. I mean, even if you've got your intelligent mind at work. And turns out that, that this uh, machine is, is not some you know, freak of nature, it's, it's pretty typical of what one finds in a cell. Just all sorts of molecular trucks and buses and power plants and computing devices and, and um, 
you know, many things that are more sophisticated than than what humans can produce at, at this point in history. Uh, and yet, um, we're supposed to attribute these things to uh, to uh, chance uh, and selection. And uh, it, it, it seems not to work. <laughs> well, it's, uh, I think the watch example is a good one. I, I also think, I mean, there's all sorts of examples. Another simple one is, is to imagine uh, a, Mo, you know, a Mozart concerto uh, writing itself by hmm. someone just throwing, you know, notes on a piece of paper. I mean, it's 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 similar to the monkey tapping tapping a a piano and waiting to see whether War and Peace. I'm I'm sorry, tapping a typewriter, a, a, a typewriter, and seeing whether uh, War and Peace will will uh, be generated. the The problem is to me, it's and it's so clear that if you if you if randomness is your driving mechanism you're never going to get anywhere because because as you point out in order for for natural selection to work or for evolution to work according to darwinianism each one of those random mutated organisms has to has to confer some kind of benefit for survival and who's to say that the next mutation will just so nicely pile up on the prior one and start building something that's actually useful. It, it, it's, I, I do not understand, frankly, why there is such a resistance to, to this argument. And I, I want to get in, into that a little bit. Yeah, well, I, I would just say quickly that the resistance, in, in my view, isn't really you know, based just on the evidence. Uh, rather, it's philosophical. Uh, and it's it's not yeah. <laughs> not very persuasive philosophy, at least to me. Uh, but when when science kind of ignores what's in front of its face uh, because he finds it philosophically disturbing, then then I think science is in trouble. We're taught, and this comes up a lot in the show, but we're taught, at least in the ideal scientific world, that you look at the facts, or and then you. And then you develop your hypotheses, and you test your hypotheses, and then you wind up with theories. But it's the facts that are supposed to control. It's not the th- it, the theory is not supposed to control the facts. And and I think I think that's what we're that's what we're having. And I I just want to get I I want to uh, point on another problem I have with this random mutation issue, and that is I really think it it shows an incredible inconsistency in reasoning, because. The, what what the Darwinians are saying to me is that they're saying that something is intricately designed as the DNA molecule generates random noise. So so you sort of have to go from chaos, which is the primordial soup, and that's the primordial the primordial soup is sort of this metaphor for how Darwin surmised that life began but you go from chaos to life life is the dna molecule but then you have to have chaos come out of dna molecule but then that chaos creates something as organized as life so it's pretty tricky so they go back and forth back and forth back and forth and and it's and i'm just hoping that at some point this is all going to come together and we're going to have a a uh, more encompassing theory now one of the one of the things that 
uh, is is uh, of interest, I think, to a lot of listeners out there, is what what is your um, what kind of reaction do you get in the academic community? Oh, uh, I get a mixed reaction mm-hmm. <laughs> um, from uh, graduate students and and younger folks. Uh, they're really pretty interested in all of this uh, and um, listen, ask good questions, and so on. Uh, with the evolutionary biologists, they have, they're pretty set in their ways, and they, they don't like this idea one bit. And if you ask them why, it's, you know, again, uh, inconsistent or, or multiple reasons. They, uh, first of all, say science cannot, is not allowed to consider mind or intelligence, and that if, if you let uh, intelligence into the explanation, then, then you've abandoned science. And, right. and I think that's, that's incorrect, but that's a, a um, reason they give. And another one is that, uh, that supposedly it's giving up to conclude that you have to uh, invoke intelligence as an explanation. And they say that uh, you'll then miss the real explanation but of course that assumes that there is a real explanation that is not does not involve intelligence right and uh a bunch of other stuff too and uh people kind of uh get very very uh emotional about this issue for some some reason you know it's scientists are not mr spock and uh they they do get upset from uh on on a number of issues and this certainly is is one of the top ones that that they get upset with, and you know they they get upset with me in particular because they they think that I'm um, um, trying to you know uh, lead the world into darkness away from <laughs> you know the in, the enlightenment and, and it was funny when you know uh, a few years back uh, when there was a controversy uh, up about teaching evolution in schools. Uh, there was a one science magazine that talked about the new and darkenment, the new and darkenment, mm-hmm. you know, the, the opposite of enlightenment. Yeah. And, you know, people really think, <laughs> really think this, and uh, so yeah, it, it really, uh, it really gets people excited. Well, I think I could see that, and I think you deserve a lot of credit for hanging tough, and and it just goes to show you that if you have a good argument, good facts. It's a little easier hanging tough, and, you know, you're standing by your principles. Uh, this is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're speaking with Professor Michael Behe, author of Darwin's Black Box, and right now I'd like you to tell us what that black box is. I have a funny feeling we touched upon it, but I don't want the lister going away not knowing what the black box is. Yeah, yeah. most of us, when we hear the phrase black box, think of the recorder in an airplane or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in science, the, black, uh, the phrase black box is oftentimes used to indicate some machine or some system or something that works and, and does something really neat, but you don't know how it works. Right. Uh, because you can't see inside the black box to see the mechanisms that are, that are uh, allowing it to work. And uh, to, to Darwin and his contemporaries, the, the cell was a black box. They saw that it did neat things, it could move, it could reproduce, uh, and, and so on. But they hadn't the foggiest idea how it worked. And the, the book goes on to say, but now, 
uh, we, modern science, uh, have, have opened the black box. And in it, we see this incredibly, you know, sophisticated uh, technology that we were definitely not expecting. Um, and so that um, we have to, I say, we have to reevaluate our ideas about where this came from in, in view of our new knowledge. It remains th the case, however, that we have such, such a dichotomy, such a contrast out there, and, you know, I touched upon it earlier, where folks think, and most of my colleagues think, that you've got to be on, on the side of Darwin in order to be perceived as being intelligent. And, well, and yeah, well, <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, that, that's true, but, but uh, uh, intellectual intimidation is not quite the, yeah. <laughs> quite the same thing as being right. You right, know, right. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I go back to, to uh, my logic class in, 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 in college yeah. where there's this logical fallacy, and it's called appeal to authority. And it's not necessarily always wrong, but I don't know if I've ever seen it used as much for Darwin. You sort of cite the Darwin, and therefore, it, therefore, it's right. And, yeah. and you know, an authority is only as good as the evidence or logic supporting it. And it's interesting if you uh, look even a little bit through the history of science, you'll come across any number of instances in which the entire scientific community believed something to be true, which it later show, was shown to be incorrect. Right. And one, one good example of this uh, is in the kind of late 1800s when uh, all physicists agreed that outer space was filled with ether right. or some tenuous substance. And and they knew it had to be filled with ether because light was a wave, and a wave needed some medium to travel in, and, right. and the medium was the ether. And so, you know, what, you know, how can you argue against that? But within about 10 or 20 years of, of the theory's peak, uh, it was utterly overturned by uh, Einstein's um, ideas about electromagnetism and, uh, and so on. And, and these days, nobody believes in the ether, certainly not... Uh, like they did in the 19th century. Right. So just because science, uh, every scientist in the world believes something is true, does does not make it so, and it and it certainly does not relieve one of the ob obligation to kind of try to defend it with with uh, uh, with evidence and and reasoning. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, you put your finger on. It, there's no doubt that there's a lot of intimidation in this area, and I don't think there's. I mean, I would put. Uh, Darwin as being the most intimidating uh, scientific theory out there. I think the Big Bang is 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 under it somewhere, but but the Darwin ever ever since ever since um, you know the Scopes trial and and you have uh, so many tough advocates for it, such as Richard Dawkins and and Daniel Dennett. That it's it's as if uh, you know it's un-American to <laughs> to believe in something different. But I but the one thing that I, I I try to do on this show is to open minds because ultimately it's the facts and the evidence that it's going to control. Now now you've said in your book and you're saying it now and I'm saying the same thing that 
these that these complex organisms, a cell, which is which is it uh, inherently complex, that it cannot be explained by simply random mutations, right? Yeah, ab absolutely. And as a matter of fact, uh, some good experiments have been done, just allowing cells to accumulate random mutations. And and just in the past ten years or so, we've gained the ability to see what those mutations are. And it, it turns out they're not real. <laughs> they're not real pretty. They're they're mostly destructive mutations and uh, things that aren't going to build uh, complex functional systems. And and you make a distinction between natural selection and common descent. And I yeah. think that's an important distinction. So why don't you explain that for the listener? Because it's it's not as if uh, you are, I, sh I should say, uh, rejecting the entire theory of evolution. That's as, right. As it's, as the, the, diff the distinction is, is not between evolution and what I support intelligent design or the involvement of some mind in, in the process. The distinction is between Darwinism and mindless, uh, utterly random evolution uh, and intelligently directed or, or, or uh, facilitated uh, evolution. Um, you said earlier that people are often uh, told that there's only two positions, either Darwinism or young earth creationism. Well, that's not the case. I, I think, you know, I... I think the the uh, universe is billions of years old, and I think that organisms are related through common descent. And uh, pretty much people before Darwin thought that organisms were related through common descent. But they thought the process which, uh, which produced new animals was teleological, which was guided. Uh, and that was Darwin's uh, new contribution. contribution. He thought he had found a way where mind was not necessary. And so you can certainly believe, like I do, that common descent is true, that the Earth is very old, and reject uh, the Darwinist claim that this could have come about, that is, the, the sophistication of modern life could have come about through some uh, random process. And so let, let's just summarize the thought process here, because this is really not that radical even though it sounds, it, perhaps to some people it might be, but in summary, we see a complex living world. We see the cell as being the, the, the uh, ultimate uh, piece, part, uh, part of, of life. We see the complex DNA code. We conclude that random mutations could not have created these things. Therefore, like other man-made devices, such as a watch or a mouse trap, there must be an intelligence of some kind behind the scenes. Now, to me, that is, that is looking at the evidence and reasoning from the evidence to a conclusion. And, and so I, I don't see that being radical. But now, now, where are you with the big question, which is, well, then what is the intelligence? Well, uh, I've, I've uh, said uh, early on that you know I'm I'm a Roman Catholic and I have been since I was you know born, and so I'm pretty conventional. I, I certainly think it's is reasonable to think that the that the intelligence is God, uh, 
but the an important point is that the science only shows you that there is some very profound intelligence behind life that does not uh, DNA does not come inscribed with a message that says you know uh, made by you know Yahweh or, or anything like that right uh, and so it's it's essentially uh, a, an idea that's friendly to any uh, philosophy or theology that uh, sees intelligence behind uh, the universe. And beyond that, I think people have to make their own um, historical and philosophical and, and other arguments for, for a more specific uh, conclusion. But yeah, I, I certainly think that, uh, you know, uh, the designer is God. Well, and and that's a point that I wanted to I wanted to have you make because I felt that that was uh, a, a very a very important sort of observation that you make in your book because a lot of people would think oh well this is just a long uh, indirect way to say that the Bible must be true and it that's really not what you're doing you're looking at the evidence and you're concluding that there must be an intelligence, a mind, somewhere in this process, either in the beginning, ingrained in it, at the end, or maybe all three or some combination of them. Yeah, and, that, and that's right. I'd like to explain it uh, this way, that, that uh, when the Big Bang Theory was first proposed, and, and some people forget that 100 years ago, most physicists thought that the universe was eternal and unchanging, and that was before the Big Bang Theory was proposed. Many people, including many scientists, thought that that was evocative of Genesis, you know, the let there be light. And they didn't like it. They thought it, you know, had these religious overtones, and they, uh, they didn't like that one bit. But the Big Bang Theory justifies itself by physical evidence and logic. It, it sees the redshift of the stars. Uh, it... Uh, concludes that galaxies are, are flying away from each other as if in the aftermath of the big explosion. There's nothing uh, religious in that reasoning. It might, might have a conclusion that's friendly to some points of, uh, religious points of view, but it, it does not, you know, start, uh, does not take as its premise, you know, the opening chapters of, of Genesis. I think intelligent design is the same, same way. It might be, you know, uh, friendly to uh, uh, theistic uh, philosophy or, or theology, uh, but it it takes its starting point from molecular machinery and the information in DNA and and the uh, you know what we would conclude in any other circumstance what looks uh, strongly to be designed uh, in life, and it applies the reasoning that that whenever we see anything that is uh, uh, complex and, and functional and sophisticated uh, that we've always found it to be designed, and, and so there's no reason to avoid that conclusion uh, in life just because it makes some people uncomfortable. So I think the intelligent design, uh, or the, the Big Bang is, is to Genesis 1 as, as intelligent design is, is to uh, uh, biblical stories, too. They're, they might be evocative of, of uh, some religious stories, but they are built completely on physical evidence and, and ordinary reasoning. Well, one of the things that I think we're going to have to do in science, and 
I might be alone in this. But at some point, uh, to me, a theory of everything is going to have to explain religion. Or at least it's going to have to explain the urge for spirituality. And, and when you, and when you uh, proceed along the reasoning that we've been through here uh, with intelligent design, it suggests, and I, I don't, well, I, and, and that's a very mild word, I think it compels the conclusion that there is an intelligence behind evolution. Now, as soon as you go there, you start finding more connections with spirituality. Because spirituality, you know, who knows if there is really a definition of it, but, but one of them would be a, a, a feeling of the oneness of the universe, the unity of all life, and, and, the, and the sense that there's something more to the world than just the brute matter, that there's something uh, to aspire to, a higher level of existence. And, yeah. and, 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 yeah. those, are, and those are all the things that are hallmarks of religion. And to me, I don't understand why somebody would want to be a Darwin, a Darwinian. I don't understand it because if you're consistent, that winds up to, uh, to, to being an atheist. It winds up to saying we're just a random creation of mindless processes. And it, it, it basically, to me, it destroys hope. Yeah, but, but, but if you're a Darwinist, at least you're smart. Well, yeah, yeah and you, at least you could, at least you could get a job and get published, right? Yeah, you, that's you right. Could, yeah. So, but but all those, yeah. but but they tend to be getting a little old. Uh, this is this is Philip Mirton. This is conversations beyond science and religion. We're talking with Professor Michael Behe, author of the the Edge of Evolution and Darwin's Black Box, and I'd like to pivot a little bit and talk about another fairly big question that is related to evolution which is the origin of life mm -hmm. because I really I think that's one of the to me it's one of the flaws of Darwinianism and frankly I think it's a flaw of the Big Bang Theory too but I'll put that to the side which is that Darwinian evolution assumes that life came from the came from the swamp or came from nothing and or, or came from mindless stuff and that's not such an easy transition. And I, so wh what, a, what kind of, of work have you done on how life originated? Well, to, uh, frankly, I, I haven't actually written much about the origin of life because it's interesting. That's actually one area where you'll get many scientists to agree that science hasn't a clue uh, how that occurred. Right. Uh, that, in, in fact... Uh, in the, what, 60, 60 years or so uh, since Stanley Miller made amino acids by sparking gases with uh, electric, uh, electric sparks. Uh, back in the 1950s, people thought that science was just about ready to, to explain the origin of life. Uh, we have we've learned a lot now about how difficult <laughs> Uh, life is to explain rather than it, than explaining it. it it's gone in reverse. It's, the problem <laughs> has become much harder the more we know. Yeah. Uh, it's it's the uh, it's the um, subsequent development of life that many scientists kind of uh, just assume we know the answer for. So that's why I I spend my uh, time uh, discussing that. But you're right that if life required kind of a 
a little bit of a nudge or help in order to get started, then what reason do we have to say that you know it didn't need help at other points along the way, or how could we rule out that whatever it was that helped life uh, in the beginning um, would be forbidden or would not have uh, helped it uh, at, at other points too? Uh, so it's that it's ju- you're just letting that kind of camel's nose under the under the tent. Uh, if if the origin of life remains an unexplained problem for Darwinism, uh, and for uh, essentially materialistic science, uh, then it kind of throws a shadow over their whole enterprise. Right, right. I think that's something that they somehow get away with, and I I've written myself uh, on this. Um, in the heaven at the end of science, where if you if you read a lot of these books closely, uh, whether by Ernest Meyer or Richard Dawkins, they basically say life must have arisen from the swamp. Therefore, it did. Yeah, it, it, it's something. It's something. It's something like that. It really doesn't get any more detailed than that. They have to have and they have to have life arise one time somewhere out of a swamp. And they sort of give them that, give themselves that sort of assumption. And then from there, they think, okay, well, we've got the DNA molecule. Now it just has to start copying itself and making some errors. And, and they're off to the races with, with evolution. But I, but I want to point out here that the most important thing that I could emphasize is this need to have an open questioning mind. Not only with with what with what I'm saying or what professors say, but but with our leading Darwinians are saying. If you look at it yourself, there is there's a lot of blank spots in the theory, a lot of gaps. It, it reminds me, you know, lately, Michael, I've, when I've been reading some of these um, these evolutionary biology articles or books or whatever. Not that I spent all my time reading them, but but there's enough that I have read. It reminds me of the God of the Gaps, the use of evolution or natural selection. The God of the Gaps being that a lot of uh, religious followers, when they can't explain something, they'll say, well, God did it. Well, how, th- how did the sun get in the sky? God did it. How did, it, you know, how did the universe create it? How did life, God, it, and that's really not an explanation. But what we're seeing to me, I think, is this reliance upon evolution to explain anything. You know? Yeah, it's kind of Darwinism of the gaps. Sure. Right, right, right. It's, yeah. and it, and it's happening in the social uh, arena. That's what's yeah. so disturbing, you know. Uh, everything, it, every every human trait, whether it's obesity, whether it's alcoholism, whether it's you know, uh, being you know, not being asleep. Well, it must have been a trait that was evolved over time. Everything is becoming you know explained by it, and I, I don't really think that's a, that's a healthy that's a healthy. Oh, no, it, it's it's ludicrous, actually. It's. Uh, because one one explains you know the the trade and its opposite essentially by the same thing. If you know if somebody is af- afraid of open spaces, well, that's because uh, our ancestors were in the trees, and and <laughs> you know they, there weren't many op- open spaces in the trees. And yeah. if they're af- afraid of uh, 
of uh, enclosed spaces, well, that's because our ancestors were on the savanna and they, you know, <laughs> didn't like enclosed space. Yeah. So it, it's it's just a f- facile storytelling, and uh, and it, it doesn't really it's not science at all. It's it's um, it's um, at best scientism. At, at worst, it's just uh, kind of a college bull session. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't really advance. It doesn't really explain much. Mm. And, and, and I think that so many times we get confused between the how and the why. We think that if somebody explains the mechanism, that they've explained why. But mm. just but just by describing, for example, how a cell splits and how the DNA gets gets uh, copied and the errors are made, that doesn't explain how it's possible that that is occurring. Without without some kind of intelligence, sure uh, playing a part. Maybe this is a good time to to tell um, the listeners about what experiments show when you let cells grow and uh, accumulate mutations and and see what selection uh, gives you. It, it turns out in the past twenty thirty years, uh, some people have been growing bacteria for many, many generations in the laboratory. It turns out 50,000 generations of, of bacteria, which is on the equivalent of a couple million years for, for large animals like, like humans, and uh, trillions of cells, so vast numbers of cells. And, and they saw that the cells would improve over time and that mutations were causing this, and, and they were very excited. But uh, in the past five to ten years, when we've learned how to sequence DNA and very, very rapidly and easily, uh, they kind of narrowed down the mutations, and it turns out that uh, all of the all of the mutations that were helping were um, were uh, breaking genes. They were uh, degrading genes. They were throwing them out. And it turns out that that helped because some systems that weren't needed in these bacteria were just tossed out, and that uh, meant they wouldn't spend energy trying to make things that they didn't really need and could grow faster than than other bacteria that hadn't had these degradative mutations. So not only not only do mutations not come up with uh, constructive um, constructive new things. They degrade the pre-existing uh, sophisticated machinery that's in the cell. Sometimes that helps, but that's certainly not a recipe for how life might have developed. Well, it's sort of like saying it's 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 sort of like saying that if random processes really were in control, we probably all would be slime molds. Some kind of jelly. Some of us are. But. Yeah, I mean, I mean, why, yeah, why, why should there be anything else? I mean, it that that it just it just amazes it amazes me to think that th- these random processes created something like Adam and Eve, or created you know uh, you know pick any movie star of either sex. I mean, it it doesn't it 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 doesn't make any sense. But I I want to emphasize here that that. The point is, is science looks at facts and and then develops theories. The in, you know the intelligent design movement has has gotten a bad name, I think, because it tends to be associated with creationism, 
or with or with biblical literalism with the fundamentalist crowd and mm-hmm. and what we're talking about here though is something so radically different it really is to me science undertaken with an open probing mind and and, and I and I can't help but think that that's really what we need and I guess my, my last question for you professor would be uh, where do you think intelligent design is going what, what do you see you mean in, in, in the scientific community or well, well over over in I mean, life it seems to me that that change is is gonna happen but it's gonna take a it's gonna take some time but but you're you're so close to it you've spoken you debated do you think there's hope for intelligent design or some offspring of intelligent design yeah, I, actually, I'm very optimistic, <laughs> turns out. And it's not because of anything I've done or because anything anybody who I know has done, but it's just that, you know, the steady work of science is is discovering more and more sophistication in life. That we, even, you know, in, even compared to the early 1990s when I was writing Darwin's Black Box, uh, our knowledge of how sophisticated life is has greatly increased. And so it's the data that I think is uh, eventually it, it, will, it will not be denied. Uh, it's, it's, uh, the data is strongly pointing to design, and, and you can only kind of withstand the data for a while. Right. So I'm pretty optimistic. Well, I forget who it was that said that facts are stubborn things. But, but I think it, it was Ronald Reagan. Actually. It was Ronald Reagan. <laughs> well, I thought that he was quoting from Sunby, but 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 let's oh, but let, let's use him as at least at least one of the sources. And the other and the other uh, saying that I use a lot, I think this is Max Planck, but he said that science progresses funeral by funeral. I mean, yeah, right. I like to think that the younger generation or or the or the older folks with with still open minds will eventually sleep on this for a long time and wake up one day and say, I can be scientific and still believe in intelligence behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what the moral of this story is. And now this is Philip Merton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Uh, Professor, I really appreciate your time. Uh, if, If you have a bookshelf, one of the books you need to get is 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 uh, Michael Behe's book, Darwin's Black Box, and the, ed- and the Edge of Evolution to get his full argument. So thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Merriton. To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heavenattheendofscience.com. 